It's important to realize though that any type of skin cancer, if it's not properly treated or treated in a timely fashion, can become aggressive and can um, be very problematic. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today my guest is Carlo Contreras, a James surgical oncologist who specializes in skin cancer. Skin cancer is the most common form of cancer with about 5.4 million basal cell and squamous cell diagnoses and about 2,000 deaths a year, according to the American Cancer Society. And then there's melanoma, a more aggressive form of skin cancer with about 100,000 diagnoses and 7,000 deaths a year. Advances in imaging, chemotherapy, and immunotherapy have combined to lead to better outcomes for patients with skin cancer. And Carlo will fill us in on some of these advances and will also talk about some prevention techniques that you can take. Welcome to the podcast, Carlo. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And skin cancer is such an important topic. Obviously, we, as, as I just read and learned, it, it's the most common form of, of cancer. So let's start with some facts and maybe um, help people understand the different kinds of skin, of skin cancer and how melanoma is connected to but a little different from the squamous cell and basal cell carcinoma. So fill us in on all the different types of skin cancer that you see. There are a wide variety of skin cancers, and so that's really one of the main reasons why it's important to see somebody who has expertise when you're dealing with one of these diagnoses. If you kind of line up all the different types of skin cancer, the two main categories are skin cancers that start growing in the skin. That's called primary skin cancers. And then the other group would be cancers that started in a different organ of the body and have ultimately spread to the skin. And for the most part, the most common types of cancers are the primary skin cancers, those that start in the skin. And within the primary cancers of the skin, um, there are a couple different varieties. Um, as you mentioned, squamous cell cancer and basal cell cancer are the most common types of skin cancer in the United States and the world. And then uh, there are other types of skin cancer like melanoma and Merkel cell cancer. And um, they vary in terms of the symptoms, what they look like to the naked eye, what they look like under a microscope, how aggressive they are, and how they're treated. Now, I've always heard that squamous cell and basal cell are less aggressive and melanoma is more aggressive. So what does that mean by aggressive? Aggressive means how rapidly they grow and whether or not they're capable of moving outside the skin. So certainly a non-aggressive skin cancer would be slow growing and would uh, stay confined to the skin and not move to other parts of the body like the lymph nodes or the liver or other organs. A more aggressive cancer is going to be a cancer that's rapidly expanding, getting bigger every day, and has the capacity to move to other parts of the body and cause problems wherever it starts growing. So overall, you're right. Basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer 
are typically the less aggressive types of skin cancer. Now, it's important to realize though that any type of skin cancer, if it's not properly treated or treated in a timely fashion, can become aggressive and can um, be very problematic. But overall, melanoma and Merkel cell cancer are generally the more aggressive types of primary skin cancer. Now we had the number for melanoma, Merkel, Merkel cell cancer, which I've heard of, but not as much as melanoma. Is that even more rare than melanoma? It is even more rare. Correct. Yeah. Uh, though it's rare, um, here at Ohio State, we tend to be a referral center for the entire state. And so we routinely see Merkel cell cancers pretty commonly. There are certainly uh, lots of different surgeons and even dermatologists who will go years, decades, and sometimes even careers with only seeing one or two patients that have ever been diagnosed with Merkel cell. Uh, here at Ohio State, we tend to see a much larger volume, again, because uh, we tend to be a large referral center. That's a great point, and I've heard this with many James doctors for many different kinds of cancers, that because you're such a large and specialized cancer center and are a referrals, referral center for the state and beyond, you get the more rare, the more aggressive, the more uh, dangerous cancers that um, doctors at smaller hospitals just don't see. So you have this special expertise. So people want to come somewhere where the doctors have seen Merkel cell and melanoma on a regular basis. Right. And that's important because we have experience from having taken care of many of these patients. Um, we are certainly um, some of the leaders in defining the optimal ways to take care of these patients. And because we have that experience, we can also more effectively communicate patients about what to expect, uh, things about prognosis, and we can really be a resource so they don't feel alone in their journey. Uh, sometimes a lot of anxiety uh, comes from just not knowing what the next day will bring. And because our team takes care of so many of these patients, we can really provide our patients that comfort of knowing what the next steps are, knowing what to expect, and having that security. Now, before we get to treatment and the next steps you talked about, something you said sort of um, made me think that perhaps we should talk a little bit about self-diagnosis and being aware of what to look for, because you said that even the non-aggressive forms of skin cancer, if you don't, if you just ignore them or don't know what they are, and they're allowed to grow for months or years, that could become a big problem. So what, in general, when people sort of look in the mirror, or in the shower, what should they be looking for? Right. So um, there, people should really look for anything that is unusual. Probably the most, um, the most important thing to look for is something that is changing from day to day, from week to week, or month to month. Um, all of us, virtually all of us, have some type of mole on our body. In other words, a discoloration of the skin. And many of us were born with these, and they don't change from decade to decade. But for some patients, for some people, they might notice that a mole is suddenly changing. It's becoming larger. It's maybe sticking out or protruding more. Maybe it's changing a different color or just becoming a different shade of the same color. 
suddenly it starts itching or suddenly when you just rub up against it, it unpredictably will start oozing a few drops of blood. These are all warning signs that it needs to be looked at by somebody who is an experienced skincare professional. The uh, various uh, skincare organizations have uh, put together an easy to remember uh, mnemonic to help you look for some of these changes. And you can remember it easily by just the first few letters of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, a stands for asymmetry of a mole. So when you look at a, a mole on your skin, is one half of it different than the other half? That change in asymmetry should be a warning sign that something isn't quite right. B means border. And there what you look at is the outer edges of the mole. Are those outer edges nice and crisp and well-defined? Or are they sort of jagged? and they just sort of diffuse or, or peter out into the normal looking skin around it. Uh, moles with nice crisp defined edges generally are less aggressive and have less potential for harboring skin cancer than those with jagged or poorly defined edges. C stands for color. It's important to look at the color because a mole that is all the same color or all the same shade of the color is generally lower risk. The higher risk moles are ones that have subtle changes in the color. So perhaps half of it is a light brown and then right next to it there's a black or a very dark brown area. Those again are moles that should be looked at by a skincare professional. Um, also, it's important to remember that sometimes when a mole loses color, that can be a warning sign. So certainly there are some moles that aren't, um, some melanomas that aren't black, that they actually can be white or pink or purple in color. So there's a whole variety of colors that they can, that they can be. But that change in color uh, can be important. You mentioned melanoma and color black. Are, they, are melanomas usually a darker black color? The majority of them, yes, are dark in color. Um, melanoma, the word melanoma, comes from um, melanin and melanocytes. So melanocytes are the pigment cells within everybody's skin, regardless of what your skin tone is. If you're fair-skinned, light-skinned, dark-skinned, everybody um, has melanocytes. And that's where the word melanoma comes from because those melanocytes, those pigment cells in the skin, if they start growing inappropriately, can ultimately end up causing uh, melanoma. And, and so getting back to the, the ABCDs, D stands for diameter. And so uh, things, if you take a ruler and take the millimeter side of that ruler and areas that are moles that are six millimeters or larger, again, should be seen by a uh, cancer uh, care professional, uh, skin uh, care professional. And the last one is E, uh, evolution. So things that are changing. So a mole that has any changes with respect to those things uh, should be looked at by a skincare professional. And I know this because you told me this previously, six millimeters is about the size of the eraser at the end of a pencil, right? Yeah, that's a good estimate. Okay, because a lot of us don't know millimeters. <laughs> true, very true. <laughs> so now that we know to look 
with what to look for. If people suspect something, they're not necessarily going to come to you initially. Do they go to their primary care physician or if they have a dermatologist? Does it matter like where they go to first before they would then get their diagnosis and come to see you? That's a great question. Uh, there are lots of ways that uh, patients with a uh, unusual skin mole can get further evaluation. And I guess I want to just take a step back and, and say that if you do have any of those uh, warning signs that I mentioned, that does not mean that you have cancer. Um, I think there's a lot of anxiety that you can get yourself into by kind of looking in the mirror and by looking around at all your moles. Certainly this is meant as a health maintenance thing, but not something that you get very anxious about. And so if you do see a mole, um, the vast majority of moles that have those risk factors are gonna turn out to be non-cancerous. But the consequences of missing a cancer are significant enough that we do want you to, we would encourage you to see a skincare professional. And so the question is, how do you get in and how do you get a diagnosis? So you can see your primary care physician, uh, primary care provider, whether it's a physician or um, an advanced practice provider. Um, certainly um, at the James, we have a whole host of services that are available. Um, the James just started a diagnostic clinic. So anybody who has a concern of cancer or a suspicion of cancer can directly contact our diagnostic center within the James and they will be uh, put in touch with the right set of providers to help make that diagnosis. And skin cancer is most frequently diagnosed by getting a biopsy or by taking a sample of that skin and looking at it under the microscope. And that is really the most definitive way to tell if you have skin cancer and what type of skin cancer, because all those different types that I mentioned will have a very unique look underneath the microscope. Okay, so that brings us up to treatment. And since that's what you do every day, kind of fill us in on the different treatments for the different types of skin cancer. And I've heard a lot uh, from a lot of different people that immunotherapy seems to be um, work particularly well for certain types of cancer, including skin cancer, which is uh, good news. Right. Yeah. So um, immunotherapy is an important part of therapy for patients with generally a little bit more advanced stage uh, skin cancers. So let's take a step back. So obviously, first and foremost, we want to prevent skin cancers from ever forming. And we can talk a little maybe a little about that later. First, a patient who does have a skin cancer, first, we have to gather some information. What stage is that cancer? How much has it progressed? Is it confined to the skin? Or has it moved to other parts of the body like lymph nodes or other organs? The vast majority of skin cancers that we see, fortunately, are early stage. The majority of early stage skin cancers can be uh, treated and cured usually with surgery. In other words, removing that part of the skin plus some normal skin around it to remove it and to reduce the risk of it ever growing back again. And also, I think that's important to stress that really um, these, the majority of these skin cancers, if they're caught early enough, are, are curative. Um, 
And those operations sometimes can be done in the office with a dermatologist or a general surgeon or a surgical oncologist. Some skin cancers have a higher likelihood of moving into lymph nodes or other parts of the body. And that's when a surgical oncologist really needs to get involved so that we can help evaluate uh, lymph nodes and things like that. So for patients who have certain skin uh, cancers like Merkel cell cancer and deeper forms of melanoma, we also have to make sure that there hasn't been spread to lymph nodes. And the way we do that is a type part of an operation called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And basically it's asking the question, has, have the melanoma cells in the skin moved on a microscopic basis to the lymph node? And we do that by removing the highest risk lymph nodes that might be connected to that patch of skin and looking at them underneath the microscope. Would that be the lymph nodes closest to the suspected or the actual skin cancer? Not always. If you would measure them sort of as the crow flies or with a ruler, they're not always the closest ones. And that's why it's important uh, that you get care with somebody who's experienced at this because there are certainly important techniques that you have to do to identify the right lymph nodes. Because if you don't remove the right lymph nodes, you're not going to get an accurate answer to that question of has the cancer moved to the lymph nodes. It's not a random sampling of lymph nodes. And, and just before you move on, because I know you're about to address treatment options if it's moved on into the lymph nodes. So if, if I understand you correctly, the um, squamous and Merkel cells very rarely do that, whereas the melanoma and Merkel cells do it on a more regular basis. So it's the, uh, very close. So it's the basal cells and the squamous cell cancers who have a much lower rate of moving to lymph nodes. It's certainly not impossible, and there are some high-risk patients where that's uh, something to be considered. Merkel cell and melanoma are the ones that have a higher risk of having spread to lymph nodes. And even within those groups, not everybody needs lymph nodes removed. Um, but it's important to see somebody who has expertise so that um, together the surgeon and the patient can decide when that is the best and most appropriate option. So when you determine uh, in those, hopefully not too many cases, that it has metastasized and spread through the lymph nodes and is elsewhere in the body, then that surgical option of just removing the portion of the skin that has it becomes more complex and you're treating, I guess, a sort of systematic cancer. Yeah. So for melanoma, between 15 to 20% of all patients diagnosed with melanoma will have spread to lymph nodes. Now, certainly that number is much higher with high risk melanomas and much lower with low risk melanomas. And so for the patients who qualify to have lymph nodes removed, then yes, we focus not only on the skin, but on the, the lymph node area. And if there is spread to those lymph nodes, then we have to really look at the whole body in terms of treating the patient. What can those treatments involve? Is that where um, chemotherapy, uh, precision cancer medicine, immunotherapy start to come in and perhaps even radiation? Um, 
For patients that have spread to lymph nodes and have usually one millimeter worth of spread to a lymph node, and that's about the, the thickness of a grain of rice, generally we do recommend um, additional therapy beyond just removing that lymph node. So that would come in the form of, of uh, immunotherapy, which is a type of medicine that's um, injected into the veins. And that medicine, it doesn't kill cancer cells directly, but what it does do is it upregulates or kind of excites or invigorates the patient's own immune system so that the patient's own immune system is recognizing melanoma as bad cells and killing those bad melanoma cells. Now, and maybe this is what I don't fully understand. You keep saying that it has spread to the lymph nodes and that you would remove the lymph nodes. Is that it? And you can then, and that's as far as it travels or does it, if enough time goes by without intervention, does it keep spreading beyond the lymph nodes? And that's where the, the, these number of deaths start to take place. Yeah. So it, it, certainly if, melanoma involves the lymph nodes and the lymph nodes aren't appropriately treated, it can and will continue to spread to other parts of the body, like the liver, like the lungs, bones, brain. Um, really, melanoma can spread to just about any part of the body. And so that's why uh, intervening and getting appropriate therapy is so important. And, and in that way, it's because I've talked to a lot of the, the breast cancer specialists at the James where they, they too check the lymph nodes in the armpit area because that's right. closest to it. And then that's where they sort of filter through and spread. So the same principles involved in skin cancer, that the lymph nodes are the, the carriers to the rest of the body. So we've got to find it before it gets past them. That is the most common way that melanoma spreads within the body. Certainly there are some examples where melanoma sort of bypasses the lymph nodes and can go to other parts of the body, but those are very unusual. Now, I know we're still, even though it's a pretty common and well-known uh, treatment, immunotherapy, we're still only five to 10 years in of it really being effective. Where, where does this sort of stand for skin cancer and what sort of new drugs and new clinical trials going on at the James? Are you kind of excited about that, that give you optimism that you can uh, have even better outcomes down the road? Right. So the immunotherapy medications that we have are typically uh, administered by our medical oncologists. So a, a form, a type of oncologist who has special training on giving medications to treat cancer. And, um, Overall, the immunotherapy is a very exciting way to treat cancer and specifically skin cancers. Right now, immunotherapy is really kind of on their first generation of medications. Um, this was a type of therapy that didn't exist, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And we're starting to see the second generation of these immunotherapy drugs emerge. And we're learning about how they might be more effective and how hopefully they might have fewer side effects than the first generation. Really the exciting part of the clinical trials that are ongoing right now are to test some of those new generation immunotherapy medications, but really also to figure out how we can combine immunotherapy with other types of chemotherapy to get even better results for our melanoma patients. 
Boy, this is just another example of what you talked about before about a big referral center like the James, where you're seeing this on a regular basis and have the expertise of using immunotherapy and combining it with chemotherapy because you see people every day who whose skin cancer is spread through the lymph nodes and sometimes even beyond. So that expertise you and others have gained over the years is what patients need and look for. Right. Yeah, it is important. And it's not just the availability of those um, types of medications and the clinical trials, but it's also the diagnostic part of things, the high quality radiology that we have, the imaging studies, the scans that go into making accurate diagnoses. It's the pathologists that we have at the James that help look under the microscope and give their expertise to know how the cancer is responding and to really determine what kind of cancer they have. Um, because the more that we learn about skin cancer, the more we realize that there is no routine skin cancer, that each case is really quite unique and demands uh, really focused therapy. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Carla is going to fill us in on, on some ways that we can prevent skin cancer, which is the goal. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Carlo Contreras, and we're talking about skin cancer. In the first half, Carlo filled us in on the different types of skin cancer, how they metastasize, and some of the treatment advances. And now, let's talk about prevention, which is so vital. So, Carlo, how can people protect themselves and prevent skin cancer? That's a great question, because prevention is so important. Um, If you can prevent a skin cancer from forming, you don't have to go through all of these questions about treatment and diagnosis and things like that. So what can you do to prevent skin cancer? Um, There are things that we we can do. Um, The most important of them would be to limit how much we are out in the sun. Uh, Clearly, we don't want everybody to live in caves and never come out. Uh, Physical activity is important. Social engagement is important. And it's making smart decisions. So it is uh, things like trying to avoid going out under uh, peak hours of ultraviolet radiation when the sun beats down on our skin the most. It means using sunblock um, effectively and consistently. Uh, and I think those are the are the main things. Also, um, you know, sp- especially in adolescents and especially adolescent females, to really um, eliminate the use of tanning beds. Uh, those are all risk factors that we can modify. There are some things like genetics that we can't really uh, change, and so we have to do we have to act upon the things that we can change. Okay, so you mentioned um, sunblock, and I know there's always a little confusion about that. What number do I use? How often do I reapply? Uh, And I keep thinking about Pelotonia, where some of us do that 100-mile ride. How often, and we're riding during the peak hours. 
how do we best protect ourselves? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, one way too is uh, over the last 10 years, we've really seen more and more products specifically clothing garments that have sun protection built into them uh, and so it's especially for long bike rides those are some things that you can use admittedly they're hotter than than using short sleeves um, so if you're using a sunblock product um, I generally recommend an SPF or a sun protection factor of 30 or greater you can find different guidelines published by different organizations that will recommend numbers between 15 all the way up to 50. Um, generally, I think the most important thing is how um, consistently you're using it and um, how often you reapply it. Those are going to be the most important features of how, how well it works for you. And so it's important to apply it to all of your sun exposed areas and if it's properly applied you should see kind of a pale sort of ghosting look on your skin you should be able to tell it's there when you look in the mirror if you can't see that then you probably haven't applied enough the other really important uh, factor is how often do you reapply it um, if you look on most sunblock bottles you'll see that it the manufacturers recommend that you reapply it about every um, hour and a half or so. And that's definitely something that I try to do with my own family and my own skin. And I certainly encourage all my patients to do the same to get the uh, maximal benefit from using those products. Yeah, and they do at all the um, rest stops at the medical tents at Pelotoni and some other bike rides that all have sunblock so you can reapply how about yeah, sunblocks water? have gotten so easy to use these days yeah. certainly we're used to using suntan uh, like sunblock lotions uh, but there are bars almost like deodorant sticks that you can very rapidly um, spread over your skin and probably the easiest are the sprays that just like in their aerosols and that um, it's very easy to cover most of your body with it very quickly and probably for a pelotonia type situation which I know we're all looking forward to getting back to, that would probably be my best bet. You could almost drive by on your bicycle without even getting off and get reapplied. I would say, though, that for your face, an aerosol spray product is still probably not the best option. Um, a cream is, is going to be the best because you don't want to be spraying something directly into your eyes, mouth, nose, or ears. What about going in the water, either the ocean or a lake or a swimming pool? Does that if you do that, does that mean you've got to do it, reapply uh, more frequently than the 90 minutes suggested or, or some of them claim to be waterproof, but are they? So the, there are products that claim to be uh, waterproof and they generally are. Again, if you follow the recommendation of reapplying it every hour and a half or so, and they will, that number of minutes does vary from product to product. So make sure and look at your specific label to make sure that you're in compliance. The other feature that I um, should mention too is that you want a sunblock that says that it's broad spectrum. And what that means is that um, the, the harmful part of sunlight is ultraviolet rays. And there are different kinds of ultraviolet rays. 
10 years ago and, and before that, sunblocks didn't cover all types of those ultraviolet rays. And more and more products these days do, and they are referred to as broad spectrum sunblocks. And that's definitely something that you should look for on the labels. Over the next five to 10 years, um, the FDA has indicated that we will see more um, specific labeling instructions for manufacturers. So it'll be easier to tell some of these things because um, different sunblock bottles will all be labeled the same way. Okay, that's something definitely to look for. Are there specific parts of the body that you see in your patients more frequently where skin cancer uh, occurs? Sun exposed areas are going to be at greatest risk because the ultraviolet rays in the sunlight over time will cause mutations in the DNA, which is really the main risk factor for um, determining how skin cancer begins. And so our, the parts of the body that are most at risk generally are the most sun exposed parts. So our face, neck, forearms are at highest risk. Certainly, especially in older males uh, who are losing hair, the scalp is a big area where we see it. Tips of ears is also an area that's high risk. And those, knowing that, those are areas where you can specifically pay attention when you're applying sunblock. So, Carlo, thank you. That's a lot of great information to absorb. And I'm certainly going to use that when I go cycling or for a walk or gardening. If anyone has any other questions or needs a second opinion or just more information, is there a number at the James they can call? Absolutely. I'd encourage anybody with questions to get in touch with us at the James line using uh, the phone number 614-293-5066, and we'd be happy to um, get in touch with you. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast and sharing all this great information. You're welcome. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.